Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and this is News You Can Use, and the date is September the 7th, 2020. And I came across this video, and it has no name, and it's kind of anonymous, and it says it will happen in the coming months. This is a coordinated effort. I want to make that clear. It has nothing to do with the original source at this point. I think most people recognize that. It's the great destroyer. It's the great deconstructor of society in America. In the case of the great panic of 2020, we had a virus that broke out in China. Before it even hit the continent of North America or Europe, computer models were already working overtime to suggest that millions of people were going to die and that the only way to stop it was to do what they said to do. We're under a full press attack from all sides. It's an ingenious attack in a way because it's very effective and it's working. We can't do much about it now individually, but there's gonna come a time. We have a new type of enemy. It's not an enemy with battle tanks. It's not an enemy necessarily with airplanes and missiles and ICBMs, but it's an enemy with an algorithm. It's an enemy who believes that only science can determine what is really true in the world. All other views are excluded. This new enemy is coming after us with scientific tools, using science as a weapon, to cause us to do what they want them, what they say they want us to do. I always challenge people, by the way, to bring to me evidence that this stuff is not true. I'd love to have people that are authoritative in their field come and say, you know, you're wrong here you're wrong there or you misquoted this or something but in all the time I've been speaking and writing about technocracy nobody really has come forward to offer any counter criticism that tells me that what I've written stands that it's true that it's accurate and that my assessment is correct as well I believe very firmly based on my entire study of technocracy and economic issues dating back to the early 1970s. The technocracy is engaged right this minute in a coup d'etat that will attempt to conquer the entire planet for the sake of establishing a technocracy. I don't think there's any doubt about it anymore. Anybody who has the power to shut down the global economic system in the first place has something going for them, you have to admit. Not everybody could do that. President Trump couldn't do that if he wanted to. In fact, there's no group of leaders in the world that could, political leaders at least, that could cause such a thing to happen. But the technocrats did. In order to make my point here again, I'll go back to one of the original architects of technocracy, Thorsten Veblen, way back in roughly 1922-1925, he said that technocracy 
that's the era that we're in now, would naturally supersede the Marxist, socialist, communist paradigm. He viewed those as necessary stepping stones to get to the end goal, which was technocracy. Zbigniew Brzezinski came along in 1970 while he was a professor at Columbia University and said exactly the same thing in his book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. He concluded that Marxism was a necessary stepping stone to his technotronic era, which is technocracy. They fed this subsequently to the United Nations, by the way, and it became sustainable development or green economy or Green New Deal is a number of terms now that describe it. But the whole concept of technocracy was then fed to the United Nations, which took it to the world. And now the world is thoroughly engulfed in this sustainable development mantra. But it requires the death of capitalism and free enterprise to implement. So who's outgunning for capitalism and free enterprise? Well, it's the technocrats. They're the ones that have pulled the strings to get us this far. They're the ones that are standing behind with financing, with moral support, with uh, resources to fan the flames of the civil unrest that we have in our nation today. This is not a Marxist takeover of our nation, my friends. Don't even go there. Don't even think it because that is not the case. The Marxists have become the useful idiots of the technocrats. They don't have a clue that they're going to be the first ones that get thrown under the bus when technocracy gains complete control of the global system. They don't see this. They don't see the hand above them manipulating them. They don't see who's executing and creating the policies to be executed all around the world. They're blind to it. But they're the ones that are going to be the first destroyed if technocracy wins completely and takes over. And if these elements are successful, at this point, who knows? They could be, maybe not. But if they're successful, when the ashes and the cars and everything else are still smoldering, out of those disasters, technocrats will rise. People will beg even for technocrats to come in and restore order to society. We've seen this happen in many countries around the world in the last 20 years. These technocrats will gladly at that point come in and say, well, it took you long enough to ask us, didn't it? So you see where this is headed? Technocracy right now has a vice grip on the entire planet. And yet, everybody still seems to think, oh, it's a communist takeover. Oh, it's going to be communism, baby. It's going to be socialism. It's going to be this, that, or the other. I'm sorry. It's not. It's going to be technocracy. If today's technocrats are meticulously working toward a scientific dictatorship and applying a specific strategy to get there, wouldn't you think that they have a specific list of criteria that must be met before game over can be called? Wouldn't you think 
that they are comparing such a list to actual progress they are making in the world. Wouldn't you think that they are monitoring their progress and will recognize when the list has been fulfilled? If you can see my point here, then there are only two questions left, and here is the punchline of this particular point. When that day comes, when that day comes, will the technocrats have the guts to shut down the old world order and simply declare the system as dictator? And if so, how long will it take them to act? Okay, so I can see why nobody put their name to that. Um, that's kind of chilling. Uh, actually, after everything that I've listened to, it doesn't sound that far off. Um, there was a... Where is it? I don't know where I put it. I was listening to a, um, a World Economic Forum. Remember how he said that they were going to be gauging how close they were to the end game? Well, let's listen to this. I just want to see if it's close. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this press conference on behalf of the International Monetary Fund. I'm Jerry Rice of the Communication Department, and the occasion uh, today is the release of our update to the World Economic Outlook. I'm very pleased that we have with us today the Managing Director of the IMF, Madam Christine Lagarde. We also have with us our Economic Counselor and Director of the Research Department, Gita Gopinath, and just to Gita's left, we have the deputy director of that department, who is Gian Maria Milesi Ferretti. So I'm going to ask the managing director to make a few opening remarks, followed by Gita, and then we'll come to your questions. Thank you, managing director. Thank you very much, Jerry, and uh, thank you and good afternoon to all of you. It's very nice to, uh, to see many familiar faces and, and good friends and to be back in uh, Davos this year. It also gives me huge pleasure, actually, uh, to introduce to you, if you hadn't met her before or didn't know her or of her, our new chief economist, Gita Gopina. We're delighted that she has joined us and we're all extremely pleased uh, to work uh, together and I'm really honored that we are sharing uh, the, uh, the podium uh, today for you. I'm also very grateful to uh, Klaus Schwab and to the World Economic Forum uh, who are giving us a chance to present uh, the update to our World Economic Outlook uh, this year. And it will be my privilege to say a few remarks without giving you much by way of numbers because that is uh, the remit of uh, Gita and uh, Gian Maria. So, how many of you do um, cross-country skiing here? No? Oh, thank you. Brilliant. Because I want to run the analogy of cross-country skiing for you. We, I'm not good at downhill, but cross-country, I'm, I'm okay. So what do you like when you're a cross-country skier? You like good visibility. 
No uncertainty. What else do you like? You like when it's kind of stable and eventually when it's a little bit downhill. You know, risks down, no hazards along the way. Yeah. Third thing you really like as well when you're a cross-country skier is everybody skiing in the tracks. Okay? Now move that to the global economy for a second. Last October, assume we had started cross-country skiing in October, we downgraded our growth forecast a little bit. Risks were on the rise. We had bad news on the trade front, if not actually materializing, at least for some it was, but certainly threats. Well, I'm afraid that uh, we are going to announce a further downward revision of our forecast. So the cross-country skiing is going to be more laborious. More efforts will be required. And the bottom line is that after two years of solid expansion, the world economy is growing more slowly than expected and risks are rising. But even as the economy continues to move ahead, as I said, it is facing significantly higher risks, some of them actually related to policy. And these risks are increasingly intertwined. Think of how higher tariffs and rising uncertainty over future trade policy fed into lower asset prices and higher market volatility. This in turn contributed to tightening financing conditions, including for advanced economies, which is a major risk factor in a world of high debt burden. Now, does that mean that a global recession is around the corner? No. But the risk of a sharper decline in global growth has certainly increased. Add to this the uncertainty, the geopolitical worries and disappointing long-term growth prospect and you have an economic picture with a pretty clear message and the message is the following for policymakers address remaining vulnerabilities and be ready if a serious slowdown were to materialize now what does that mean for most countries, it means harnessing the existing growth momentum, because yes, there is growth, in order to create more policy room to act. And the goal is to make sure that economies are more resilient, they are more inclusive, and they move towards more collaboration. So let me distinguish each of these three. More resilient. In terms of policies, it means reducing high government debt because that would open space that is needed to fight future downward. But this must be done in a fair and growth-friendly fashion. Monetary policy should be data dependent and exchange rates should be allowed to act as shock absorbers. Developing macroprudential tools will further 
financial sector stability and reduce potential vulnerabilities. This also remains the time for economic reforms in order to lift growth, especially in labor markets and infrastructure investments. That's what I mean by resilient, inclusive. If we are to deliver on the promise of the digital revolution that will be much talked about in terms of productivity, in terms of employment, and in terms of long-term growth, then we must make sure that it delivers for all people. And that includes helping workers that are displaced as a result of transformations and automation. It means creating new and better opportunities for women and in particular for young people. This is the theme that I will address in various forum in the next few days. Resilient, inclusive. My third point is collaboration. Effective international cooperation comes down to fairness, to flexibility, and to a commitment for the common good. And that's where solidarity also means self-interest. I will develop that theme in the next few days as well. So what we need to do, all policymakers, all skiers following the tracks, we need to redouble our effort to resolve the shared problems that we are facing. From fixing the global trade system, yes, the G20 has called for that and it needs to be delivered upon, to fighting corruption and tax evasion, to addressing the existential threat of climate change. What's in it for the IMF? Well, the IMF needs to be in a strong position in order to help all countries. Because history suggests that somewhere over the, or the horizon, there will be unsuspect, unexpected developments. The international community must come together to build a brighter future for all. I've called this a new multilateralism. And again, we will be developing that topic in the next few months as it applies to macroeconomic policies in all its dimensions and structural reforms as they need to be applied in many corners of the world. Those were my messages. I'm going to disappear and leave the floor to our most eminent economists, starting with our chief economist, Gita. Floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Managing Director. Um, so I will flesh out a little more what's in the outlook. While global growth in 2018 remained close to post-crisis highs, the global expansion is weakening and at a rate that is somewhat faster than expected. This update of the World Economic Outlook projects global growth at 3.5% in 2019 and 3.6% in 2020, that is 0.2 and 0.1 percentage point below last October's projections. Now, the downward revisions are modest. However, we believe the risks to more significant downward corrections are rising. 
While financial markets in advanced economies appear to be decoupled from trade tensions for much of 2018, the two have become intertwined more recently, tightening financial conditions and escalating the risks to global growth. We have revised downwards our forecast for advanced economies slightly, mainly to, due to downward revisions for the euro area. Within the euro area, the significant revisions are for Germany, where production difficulties in the auto sector and lower external demand will weigh on growth in 2019. And for Italy, where sovereign and financial risks and the interconnections between the two are adding to headwinds to growth. The U.S. expansion continues, but the forecast remains for a deceleration with the unwinding of the fiscal stimulus. Across advanced economies, we foresee growth to slow from 2.3% in 2018 to 2% in 2019 and 1.7% in 2020. This softening growth momentum has provided little lift to inflation. While core inflation is close to target in the US, where growth is above trend, it is significantly below target in both the Euro area and Japan. Economic activity in emerging and developing countries is also projected to tick down to 4.5% in 2019 with a rebound to 4.9% in 2020. The projection for 2019 has been lowered from October, mainly because of a large projected contraction in Turkey, amid policy tightening and adjustment to more restrictive external financing conditions. There is also a significant downgrade to growth in Mexico in 2019 and 2020, reflecting lower private investment. The projected rebound in 2020 is due to an expected recovery in Argentina and Turkey. The outlook for emerging markets and developing economies reflects the continued headwinds from weaker capital flows following the higher US policy rates and exchange rate depreciations, even though they have become less extreme. Across emerging economies, some of the pickup in inflation reversed towards the end of 2018. Overall, the cyclical forces that propelled broad-based growth since the second half of 2017 may be weakening somewhat faster than we expected in October. Trade and investment have slowed. Industrial production outside the US has decelerated and purchasing managers' indices have weakened flag, flagging softening momentum. While this does not mean we are staring at an imminent major downturn, it is important to take stock of the many rising risks. An escalation of trade tensions and a worsening of financial conditions are two key sources of risk to the outlook. Higher trade uncertainty will further dampen investment and disrupt global supply chains. A more serious tightening of financial conditions is particularly costly given the high levels of public and private sector debt in countries.
In other risks, China's growth slowdown could be faster than expected, especially if trade contentions continue. And this can trigger abrupt sell-offs in financial and commodity markets, as was the case in 2015-2016. In Europe, the Brexit cliffhanger continues, and the costly spillover between sovereign and financial risks in Italy remain a threat. In the US, a protracted federal government shutdown poses downside risks. Given this backdrop, policymakers need to act now to reverse headwinds to growth and to prepare for the next downturn. The main policy priority is for countries to resolve cooperatively and quickly their trade disagreements and the resulting policy uncertainty, rather than raising harmful barriers and further destabilizing an already slowing global economy. The call of G20 leaders to reform the World Trade Organization in Buenos Aires must be accomplished. Where fiscal space is low, fiscal policy needs to adjust in a growth-friendly manner to ensure public debt is on a sustainable path while protecting the most vulnerable. Monetary policy in advanced economies should continue to normalize carefully. The major central banks are keenly aware of the slowing momentum, and we expect they will calibrate their next steps in line with these developments. Macroprudential tools should be used where financial vulnerabilities are building up. And across all economies, measures to boost potential output growth and, and enhance inclusiveness are imperatives. Lastly, Given that policy space for countries is more limited than in 2008, multilateral cooperation will be even more important in the event of a sharper decline in global growth. And it is essential that multilateral institutions like the International Monetary Fund have adequate resources to deal with the rising risks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kisa. Let me turn to some questions in the room. If you could please uh, identify yourself by name and affiliation, then we will uh, try and take as many questions as we can. Uh, let me begin with uh, Lady Dunfront. Can you hold on for the microphone? Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Julie from iPhone.com of China. Uh, my question to Gita. Um, What's your expectation on Brexit deal and the, its impact on the global economy? And what's your suggestion to the leaders of EU and Britain? How to break the deadlock of Brexit deal if the second voting is failed? Thank you very much. A no-deal Brexit is one of the major risks to our forecast. Uh, our forecast uh, incorporate uh, a smooth transition that a deal is actually made uh, and that there is a smooth transition to the new setup. But if there is a disruptive uh, exit or if there is continued uncertainty for many more months, both of those are going to weigh negatively on growth going forward. Uh, and I think it is uh, imperative for the leaders to resolve this uncertainty immediately. Thank you. Uh, Bloomberg in the second row here, if you can wait for the mic. 
Thank you very much. Eric Martin with Bloomberg. I wanted to ask about the modeling for some of the trade scenarios that you mentioned and the downside risks from the trade war in particular. What would be the consequences for the global economy of an end to the current truce between the U.S. and China on trade? Uh, we, that would be an upside risk. Um, we had uh, looked into this very closely in the October uh, WIO. Uh, and Sorry, our, and, and, and end to the current truce, that things worsen from where they are now. Oh, things worsen. Okay, well, then that would certainly be a, a worsening of the outlook. The um, When we did a, a, a major uh, update in last October, uh, following the trade tensions, uh, the assumptions were that uh, the higher tariff rate uh, on Chinese imports uh, on sorry, U.S. imports from China, the 25% higher rate, would come into play. Uh, so if uh, on the plus side that that isn't the case, then that would be a positive upside risk. Uh, but if in, on the other hand, if it is a, a much more serious deterioration uh, in the trade tensions, then that would be a much more significant downside risk. Okay, I'm going to swing down to the front, lady in the front. Yes, ma'am. Celia Mata from CNBC. Hello. I have a question about China because we received the new GDP figures earlier this morning confirming the slowest growth rate since 1990. How worried about how worried are you about China and whether this will transition into a wider global growth slowdown? Thank you. Uh, the Chinese the numbers that we saw for China today are actually completely consistent. Uh, with our forecast. So our estimate for 2018 uh, was 6.6%, uh, which is exactly where it uh, came in. Uh, so what that means is that we're certainly not seeing any big rise in a faster pace of slowing down. Uh, this is consistent with the level of maturity of the Chinese economy, uh, the rebalancing of, of China's economy. Uh, and so this is, uh, you know, I would think of it as a positive uh, reinforcing of the fact that China's growth, while slowing, which is to be expected, uh, nothing dramatic is being is happening at this point. Okay, thank you very much. I'm going to take the other side of the room here. Yes, sir, in the front row. I think it's Arabic news. Hi, thanks. Uh, Arab news. Um, Frank Kane, Arab news of Saudi Arabia. Uh, just on the on on the oil price, your forecast less than sixty dollars for the next two years is rather more pessimistic than uh, many others. Can you can you say how you got to that figure? Yep, uh, you're right about the numbers, and I'm going to hand over this question to Jean-Maria. So, uh, our forecast for the oil price uh, is based on futures prices, uh, and that is what futures prices uh, indicated at the time we finalized uh, our forecast. That is a broadly horizontal path for oil prices from. Uh, staying below 60, between 55 and, and 60. So that is what underpins our uh, forecast. Uh, El Pais in the third row, lady in the third row, please. Hello, Alicia Gonzalez from El Pais. Um, uh, I've seen the differences you made in your assessment for two economies with new governments. Uh, it is Mexico and Brazil. Uh, why do you see a deterioration in one hand for, for Mexico? And then you, you 
have a more upset assessment for the Brazilian economy. Is it for the reforms or the policies announced? Thank you. Uh, for Brazil, uh, we are seeing continued uh, growth and these are coming a lot from cyclical factors, uh, which is a recovery from the downturn. And so that's a cyclical uh, expansion that we are, we are incorporating uh, in there. Uh, there are still uh, risks to Brazil's outlook too, in the, in the sense that very high levels of debt for Brazil remains an issue. In the case of Mexico, the downward revisions are because of uh, policy uncertainty and the dampening effect we expect that has on uh, private sector uh, investment. And I'm going to let John Maria jump in here if he has, would like to add anything. Uh, yes, I would just add that for uh, Mexico, we see a somewhat weaker momentum coming in 2019. Uh, so that is one factor uh, also contributing to our down revision. But I think it's important when one compares the two to uh, understand that Brazil comes uh, out of a very deep uh, recession in 2015-16 with uh, very uh, moderate growth uh, since then and had needs more room to, to um uh, close the uh, the output gap. Mexico come from a period of not spectacular but more stable growth. Thank you. I'm going to take ITV way at the back. Uh, hello there, Joel Hills from ITV News. Uh, Gita, in Britain, we are obsessed with the British uh, cliff Brexit cliffhanger, as you put it. Um, I wonder what your view is. What is the biggest risk to the British economy? Is it slowdown in China or is it disorderly Brexit, in your view? Uh, the immediate risk uh, would have to be Brexit. Uh, the uncertainty associated with what the outcome is going to be come March, I think, has to be the dominant uh, factor. And how much longer can this uncertainty continue before it damages the economy? We've already seen the negative effect of this uncertainty on British investment. Uh, we have done our estimates of what it would be, how costly it would be to the British economy to have uh, a no-deal Brexit, which would be a reversal to WTO uh, rules. Uh, and that would be a decline in long-run uh, output of about, of long-run GDP of between 5 to 8 percentage points. So those would be quite significant. Uh, it is absolutely essential that this uncertainty is resolved sooner than later. Uh, goodness, that's, can I just Thank ask you. a no, supplement very much, Jerry, on that? I'm going to turn. Uh, lady, uh, next to you, please. Hi, Isha Nelson from Quartz. Um, I think one of the things that's noticeable about this year's World Economic Forum is the political leaders that are missing because they're dealing with national crises at home. You briefly mentioned the shutdown. Obviously, we just talked about Brexit, but I wanted to introduce France as well and the Yellow Vest protests happening there. And just ask, how much longer do these particular instances have to go on before you start to see measurable impact on the national economies and then also the global economy? Political risks are clearly uh, very important. Uh, and in France, uh, we actually reduced our estimates. So we uh, revised our forecast downwards uh, slightly, but because of the Yellow West uh, uh, protests that we had towards the end of uh, last year. Uh, I think what is important, you know, instead of waiting for an escalation of these political risks, is for leaders to immediately take actions 
that prevent such uh, such you know uh, unhappiness with the way uh, things are working out for some sections of society, and these are real genuine concerns uh, that need uh, that need to be addressed. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, New York Times, please. Uh, Keith Bradshaw, New York Times. A question on LDCs. Are you concerned to see rising foreign debt among many of the poorest countries at a time when there are also concerns about falling commodity prices as the world's uh, economy slows and also we see less and less of that debt covered by Paris Club? Thank you. What our report highlights is that there is actually a, a great deal of heterogeneity in how uh, LDCs are doing. Uh, so it is not one story for all LDCs. Uh, and that is heartening, uh, given that actually there has been a fair amount of financial turmoil uh, in 2018. Now, it is indeed the case uh, that for some countries, uh, the fact that they still have high debt levels, uh, and we are, you know, financial risks are one of the major factors that we are flagging in this, in this report. It is an important concern and is an important downside factor. For commodity prices, 2018, the, the, the initial part of 2018 was good for commodity exporters. Uh, and actually, we, that increased our estimates for 2018 for some of those countries. Uh, but going forward, with commodity prices coming down, uh, that, is, uh, that is a negative impact for those economies. Thank you very much. I'm going to take uh, two more questions. Uh, one at the very back. Gentlemen, yes, sir. You can hold on for the mic. I'm Ihab, Ihab Alokdi from Al Jazeera News Channel. Uh, you just said about, you expected that the price of the oil would be between 55 and 60. Uh, what do you expect uh, that impact on the uh, GCC countries' uh, uh, economies and the growth in it, especially Saudi Arabia, which is considered one of the uh, most uh, exporters of uh, uh, from the Middle East, and what's the impact on uh, on the other countries uh, that uh, um, are in relations with the uh, GCC countries in the Middle East, like North Africa, and all the, those countries? Um, I mean, the, the the decline in oil prices and the projections for oil going forward certainly uh, weaken growth for major commodity exporters, uh, including uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'm going to let John Maria add to that. Yeah, so the, indeed, the, the downward revision for Saudi Arabia's growth forecast for 2019 is 0.6% comes from uh, uh, the decision to uh, rest, restrict oil production taken at the uh, OPEC plus meeting in December. Um, so it's reduced. Uh, a bit reduced oil uh, output growth, and that is the reason for the revision. There are other fa offsetting factors, but not strong enough. So um, fiscal policy has become more expansionary in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but uh, so the non-oil part of the economy is uh, picking up uh, a bit more. But uh, on uh, in the aggregate, uh, there is a negative impact because of the reduced production of oil. You mentioned spillovers. Uh, to uh, uh, other countries. Of course, 
typically if you have a slowdown in uh, GCC countries you will see uh, somewhat lower remittances uh, that affect uh, some of the countries that send a lot of workers to the region. At the same time some of these countries may be oil importers so while they get lower remittances um, think of Pakistan or Bangladesh, uh, they would also benefit uh, on the other side from uh, reduced outlays for uh, oil purchases. So the net impact uh, in some cases for importers is going to be positive, but again, this remittances channel is an important one to uh, take into account. Thank you, John Maria. Okay, I'm going to make this the last question, so I'm going to take uh, the gentleman here. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Cameron with China Central TV Business Channel. So I want to know what's your take on China's tax cuts, especially the latest round, which is the personal income tax cuts, which aims to free financial burden for middle and low income groups. Will those rounds of tax cuts serve to cushion more some downside risk and increase domestic consumption in, in the in the year of 2019? Uh, the tax cuts for China uh that China uh, implemented along with the uh, loosening of uh, reserve requirements. Uh, both of those are factors that cushioned, in our opinion, the negative impact of uh, trade uncertainty, the trade tariffs, um, and which is why there wasn't, we haven't changed actually our forecast for, for China going forward since October. Uh, so we think of both of those as uh, having played a useful role. Uh, we, however, continue to flag that it's important for China to uh, uh, to to uh, uh, ring fence its financial uh, sector to make sure that uh, credit growth is sustainable, uh, that there is financial regulatory reform, uh, and there's still a rebalancing of the economy away from industry towards services. So that has to continue to be the medium-term, long-term goal for China. Thank you very much, Gita. Thank you, Jan Maria. And thanks to all of you. We'll see you in the course of the coming week. Thanks. Okay, so I want to compare that to this year's. Our humanity. Once again, I want to thank you all for being here. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Henny Admati. Thank you, Farnham, for that lovely introduction. Thank you all for coming today to talk about robotics and human-robot interaction when you could be listening to Angela Merkel talk about the European Union. <laughs> um, so today, I'd like to talk to you about uh, robots and the role that robots play in our society. And I want to start with a story. So in October of last year, a company, a robotics company rolled out a new product in Pittsburgh. This was a little robot, looks kind of like a cooler on wheels, that's designed to deliver food from a restaurant in town to college students on campus. And this robot, the interesting thing about it is that it was designed to autonomously navigate the world. So on its own, it would drive to the restaurant to pick up the food and then roll down the sidewalk and drive to a college dormitory or an apartment and deliver that food to a student. Now this is really interesting technology, but within a few days of the deployment, a tweet appeared, as they do, 
Um, this tweet was from a doctoral student at Carnegie Mellon, at, uh, at University of Pittsburgh, um, named Emily Ackerman. And Emily uses a powered wheelchair to get around. And as she explained, she encountered one of these robots as she was crossing one of our busy streets um, in Pittsburgh. Now, the robot, by design, waits to cross the street. It doesn't cross the street when there are people coming at it. And it waits in kind of the center of that depression that goes from the sidewalk down to the road called the curb cut. Now, you might be familiar with the curb cut if you've ever rolled a heavy suitcase or pushed a stroller or a pram. And Emily uses the curb cut to move her powered wheelchair off of the road and onto the sidewalk. Now, uh, that day that Emily encountered the robot, it was waiting, as it was programmed to do, in the curb cut. And that meant that she didn't have enough space to drive her own wheelchair onto the sidewalk without having to bump up onto the curb, which can be quite painful for someone who uses a powered wheelchair. Um, so Emily posted this account of interacting with this autonomous robot, and the fallout was very fast. <coughs> Within hours, the University of Pittsburgh had frozen the beta test for this robot, and the company had pulled the robot and started to reassess how the robot was programmed and designed to do the street crossing behavior. They've since uh, reformulated some of the algorithms and maps uh, in the area, and they've redeployed the robots into this space. But there are still questions about how these robots are gonna interact with people, and in particular, the accessibility issues that having a robot on the sidewalk presents. So this kind of robot is, uh, is a turning point, represents a turning point in the field of robotics. Until now, our most successful commercial robots looked much more like this. So these are robot arms that are in a Tesla factory, and they're designed to very, very quickly and efficiently and safely weld together vehicles. These robots work 24 hours a day. They do the task much more safely than a human welding would do the task, which is great. But they're actually specifically designed not to work around humans. So I don't know, I want you all to look. Who can see the human in this photo? Raise your hand when you finally spotted the human in the photo. So there are four hands up. Amy's seen it. All right, a few more hands. So if you don't see it, I'll reveal it. <laughs> you got it. You got it just before. Yeah, it takes a while. Well, and, and it's because the human is a small part, and you can actually see they're behind glass. They're being protected from the robots. The robots are really dangerous. They move really fast. They're not sensing their environment, looking for people. That's what we've been doing, and there's been a ton of success in automation that's um, really accelerated the pace of a lot of autonomous manufacturing. But I said we're at a turning point. The new kind of robotics, the new exciting research in this area, focuses on robots that do work with humans, that our, are in our worlds. And we're already starting to see some of these products and devices out in our spaces. So in Pittsburgh, we have autonomous cars driving around our streets. You can see they have the LiDAR spinning around on top. Um, there are robots that do deliveries in hospitals, bringing medicine or linens to nurses' stations. There are robots that clean our houses. One of the most successful uh, home-based uh, commercial robot is the Roomba. And these robots need to deal with the complexity of our world. They're not in a factory. They don't have a very organized, structured, well-lit space. They need to deal with the fact that we can sometimes move furniture 
or that there are people around or there's clutter. But most importantly, they need to deal with the fact that there are humans in their environment. And humans present a really important challenge, um, because of both from safety, but also from efficiency and effectiveness. These new products are designed to work with and around people. And so in order to do their job, they have to understand the needs that people have. I'm in robotics because I am fascinated by people. And that might seem strange at first until you realize that robots that are going to do a good job also need to understand people. So I'm fascinated by the way that people can collaborate and form teams and work together using sophisticated communication, primarily verbally and non-verbally. So people, when they're interacting with each other, can coordinate together. And we can use language to coordinate for sure, but a lot of what we do involves our eye gaze, where we're looking, our gestures, our body language, our facial expression, our, you know, there's, there's a lot of nonverbal communication that happens when people are working together. So think about the last time you cooked with someone else in a kitchen and how you coordinated not running into each other and dividing tasks and sharing tools, often without having to use language. My goal is to make robots capable of this kind of complex nonverbal communication so that when they work together with people, they can understand what people are trying to achieve and actually help people at the right time. I work in a lot of different contexts within robotics, but the area that gets me most excited is this field we call assistive robotics. And these are robots that help people who have some kind of impairment uh, live more uh, independent, uh, higher quality lives. So these assistive robots could be physically assistive robots that uh, physically hand objects to people that help people eat food or pick up a glass of water and take a drink. There are also socially assistive robots. These are robot tutors, robot coaches, robot therapy assistants. Um, I'm not going to talk about them as much today, but they're also an area of robotics that people in human-robot interaction are focusing on. Um, I want to say here that it's really important to understand that not every accessibility problem needs to be solved by a robot. Um, there are many low-tech accessibility tools like the white cane that someone who's blind or low vision uses that work really well. But as we start to build robotic technology, we start to find that we can have robots um, that help people in new ways and really increase people's capacity using these kinds of robotic technologies. And that's what I look at. I really am fascinated by how we can make this kind of robot that you see here intelligent so that it can assist people in providing them what they want at the time that they want it. And one of the ways that we do that is by looking at how people's nonverbal behavior, and in particular how their eye gaze, indicates what task they're trying to achieve. If, it, if the robot knows what task you're trying to achieve, then it can take assistive action to help you. Um, to do that, we bring people into the lab and we examine how they react, what their nonverbal behaviors are, when they're doing assistive tasks with a robot. So we brought people into a lab, asked, asked them to spear pieces of food with a robot arm. And as you can see in the video that's playing, this, uh, the person who's operating the robot using a joystick is giving us a lot of nonverbal behavior, right? There's a lot of indication of when she's concentrating, when she's pleased with the outcome, what, what target, what her target uh, is on the plate. 
And we can take advantage of this to um, have the robot respond. <laughs> um, we can take advantage of this to have the robot respond at the right time. Um, I'm going to show you a video now of what it looks like when, uh, from the first person perspective of someone's eye gaze in this task. So here's a camera the person is wearing looking out and this, this person is wearing an eye tracker and the pink dot represents where the, the user is looking as they do this food spearing task that you just saw. So in this case, um, you can see that mostly the eye gaze goes between the hand uh, of the robot, which is what the person is controlling with their joystick, and the food that's on the plate, their target of their manipulation. By using this kind of information, this uh, planning glance down to the target of the, of the, uh, of the spearing action, we can actually um, have the robot predict where it needs to go and start moving in that direction, or at least start turning the fork in the right direction to help the teleoperator, the user who's controlling the robot with the remote control, do the task more quickly. The interesting thing about eye gaze is that it doesn't just tell us what people are trying to do, like which piece of food the user wants, but it also tells us when someone starts to have trouble with the task. So here, in this video, I'll keep playing it, you can see that at the beginning of the task, most of the eye gaze is between the robot hand and the food. But in a minute, this operator is going to make a mistake. They're going to drop the robot elbow below the level of the hand, and that makes it very hard to spear the food. And they know that this has happened. So right here, they know it, and their eye gaze patterns switch. They stop looking at the plate of food for the most part and start looking at that problematic elbow. Here's another view. Uh, different, different time. We, it didn't take much for people to have trouble operating this robot. Um, and you can see that their eye gaze really focuses on parts of the robot that are problematic. And this is amazing because the human has not told us that there is a problem. They haven't timed out on the task. The robot is still in a valid position. But our system can now know that someone is struggling and needs it to kick in with a little bit more help. So my goal um, is to then have this, the robot actually do that assistance, reposition its elbow, and then give control back to the user. And that's what we're working on right now. Now, it's not just eye gaze that's informative in these kinds of assistive robotics tasks. Um, we look at a whole host of nonverbal behaviors, including body posture, facial expression, using facial actions and uh, key points on the face. We can monitor someone's pupil size and tell when they're under increased cognitive load in certain conditions. And because we're academics, we release all of this data to the public for free. So if, if you, after this talk, you look up my lab's website, you can find all of the data that you're uh, seeing here. It's five hours of video downloads. It's a two terabyte download, so I don't do it on WEF internet, do it on, on faster internet. Um, but uh, it's uh, data that we're hoping that people will be able to use to find new connections between how uh, humans behave in a task and what the robot should actually do. My long-term goal is to make assistive robots that people can use every day, to do everyday tasks like roaming through the world or eating a social meal. And in order to do that, these robots that work very, very closely with people are going to have to understand what someone's trying to achieve, what kind of help they need, and when they actually need that help. 
And so my uh, vision for robotics and human-robot interaction is that as we build these autonomous technologies, as we see more robots coming out into our world, we take the human into the equation early and we build systems that understand human needs and human preferences. Thank you. Okay, I'm confused. <laughs> job done. So I am your professor yeah. at CMU. I'm a professor at NYU. Um, you're a roboticist. Uh, I am a quantitative futurist. So a lot of what I do is think about the long-term risk and opportunity, try to model all of that out using data. And a lot of what I'm hearing about all these robots is that pretty soon they're going to be anthropomorphized and come and murder us in our sleep <laughs> after they've taken all the jobs. <laughs> what you're telling me seems to be a little different. Yes. So my question to you to start off with is, um, how did this conversation get so off the rails? Because what you've shown me is very much human-centered, yeah. a human-centered approach. Yeah. Um, and somehow uh, th that is not what we talk about. Any thoughts? Yeah, so many thoughts. Where things went wrong? Uh, <laughs> we, all right, how many people have seen Star Trek in the audience? Yeah, so there's a lot of hands being raised for those of you who As can't see. Um, <laughs> how many people have seen Big Hero 6? Okay, fewer hands, probably people with kids. Um, there's a tremendous amount of media around robots. There have been robots in movies since 1930, since Metropolis, and as a society, as a, as a global society, we have this vision of robots as anthropomorphic beings, where anthropomorphic means human-like, so they have two legs and two arms and a head and they walk upright, and they are incredibly capable, and they understand our language, and they understand our social norms, and they live in our environments. Um, sometimes they don't follow our social norms. Um, I think media helps us dream these big dreams, but the reality is really far from that. And How so? Um, because I'll tell you, in the mid-1950s, yeah. uh, Electro, the Moto Man from Westinghouse, yeah. they had a walking, talking robot that also smoked cigarettes. People were very excited about Classy. this. Classy, yeah. So uh, I'm, I, guess, I guess what do you mean? Like the fine motor articulation yeah. isn't there yet? Or what, tell, tell me... Tell me how yeah. the expectation is so off from great. reality. It we are really good at doing a lot of, right, we're great at walking, we're generally, we're great at, you know, picking up small objects, even if we're not sure how much they weigh, and we totally take for granted those skills. But when you think about a baby, a baby takes years to develop the motor coordination to tie their shoelace, they take years to develop the language skills. Um, we're kind of expecting a lot out of robots. And the reality is all of those things that we take for granted are very, very challenging problems. And when we're doing it with digital systems, with computers, we don't even know, we often didn't even know where to start. So in the 1950s, there's this kind of joke. It, it's, a, it's a story that really drives home how um, idealistic I think the community was, right? So in the 1950s at MIT, some researchers founded the MIT Summer Vision Project. And the goal of that was to uh, take three undergraduate summer interns, and they were just going to solve computer vision. They were going to write uh, a program to recognize objects in the world, and then uh, at and a then, time when televisions were like half a <laughs> exactly. And yes. then and then they were going to go, you know, and then they were going to go hard solve the hard problem. Sure, of course. Um, and uh, if, if 
if you know anything about computer science, you know that computer vision is one of our biggest fields still. We're still solving object recognition. Um, in the last five or 10 years, we've seen this tremendous boom in object recognition capability, but this is still an open problem. What we take for granted, the fact- why, why is it an open problem? Is it there's the corporate aren't there yet? Is it there, there's too much variability? Well, like we, yeah, it's an open problem because, we, because to do object recognition from pixels, which is what a computer gets, um, is very different than the way we do object recognition. And we hadn't developed the algorithms that could map a pixel to a meaningful representation in the world. And why is that important as it relates to robotics? Right, so a robot 